Where do wars and fights come among, from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? You lust and do not have. You murder and obey and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your own pleasures. Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is at enmity with God? Whoever, therefore, wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealousy? But he who gives more grace, but no. But he gives more grace, therefore he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. Do not speak evil of one another, brethren. He who speaks evil of a brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law and judges the law. But if, but if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. Who are you to judge another? Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to such a city, such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell, and make profit. Whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow, for what is your life? Is it, e it is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. But now you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. If you're 10 years of age and younger, you may be dismissed from Children's Church. <laughs> when I only see two teenagers go, that's a problem. They're 10. Oh, guys, you can go to Children's Church. There you go. Alright. Pray for our young people. We've had Normally there's several younger ones that are here on Sunday morning and we're not really sure what the reason is, but they've not been coming the last couple of weeks. So um, they come from backgrounds probably that a lot of us aren't familiar with, so we just need to pray for them. Um, a couple things before we get started. There's one person I did forget to recognize is back. Savannah's back. Savannah, don't look at me like that. Savannah is Lance and Kim's daughter, but she's serving our country in the military and she's here to take it And um, those of you that are from the Bible Institute that have been serving all of this year, don't wave at me, stand up. Um, This is their last week at the BI, the Bible Institute, that's lingo for, I don't know, word of life ease, I guess you could say, but anyway, they're, they're, this is their last week there. I'm not sure how much they'll be able to be over here once camp starts, uh, but make sure you shake their hand and tell them thank you, and pray for them this summer. Um, they're going to be serving 
and counselors and staff out there is probably about three to four thousand kids will go through that camp in eight weeks and uh, it's a very long stressful time and they will be pushed beyond anything that they have ever experienced before and probably will be encouraged not to have any children by the end of the so just pray for them um, and there are and we'll, we'll pray for our kids out of our student ministries that are going to be out there in a couple weeks but uh, there's a good number of our student ministry that's going to be out there serving all summer long so we're proud of them and pray God will use them we also have a couple that are going to be in the Bible Institute next year we have actually four from our church going to the Bible yes. Institute next year so that's a big deal that's a big deal so you keep praying for them Thank you, Mark, for reading scripture. Let's just open up with prayer as we get started. God, we're grateful for your word. Uh, we thank you for the truths in it. Uh, we thank you that we live in a country where we can still meet and freely um, study it without fear of persecution. Lord, and we do pray for those all over the world uh, that experience great persecution to be able to meet and read your word and to have your word something we don't really understand but we ask that you protect the persecuted church all over the place and lord we pray that we continue to have that freedom but we thank you for your word we thank you for the power that it's it's been in each of our own lives for those of us who come to salvation we know that without your word we wouldn't know who you are what you've Lord, we're grateful for it. So just this morning as we spend a little bit of time here going through uh, this next section in James, Lord, I pray that you would uh, challenge us uh, as we think about taking care of worldliness in our own lives. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, as you see on the screen, those of you that are visiting, we're not weird, so just bear with us, all right? We put together a set of motions that go with this verse, verses so that we can learn them in a better way. Um, we've talked about it. If you go back to the beginning of chapter 4, uh, we've talked about the fact that we are called to, James is talking about worldliness, what, how worldliness has crept, wow, you can turn that down just a little bit. Now, worldliness has crept into the lives of these believers, and there is a cure for that worldliness. And he gives that in these verses, starting in verse 6. Uh, he calls us to a decision. As he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And we looked at those things several weeks ago. And we started looking through this six-step process, if you want to call it that. More, more of a formula, I guess you could say, that God has given us to take care of worldliness. Can everybody hear me? Yeah. Okay, worldliness in our lives. All right. Remember, we have a three-pronged enemy. Right. Who is it? Who is it? Number one, it's, it's Satan. All right. We know that Satan is not only present, so he can't tempt everybody all over the place. But his minions can, his demons can. But it's Satan, the world. The world is what? The world is the system that Satan has designed for this time period under God's sovereignty. Uh, for this time period, and his desire in this system, this thing that he's designed is to keep people away from Jesus but once we're saved to keep us from growing he can't have your soul as a Christian 
but he definitely can have your testimony. That's right. And he definitely can have your service. Because he can render you through the world system to pull you away from the things of Jesus. And the last part of that enemy is our flesh. The old nature <laughs> that when we get saved is dead. But unfortunately, we as Christians tend to dig up that old man, we get our shovel out, we go out into the graveyard and we dig him up every time we want to do things the old, the old way. So what's the cure? And then this six-step thing here, the pro process, uh, James sort of gives it to us. And you go anywhere else in Scripture and you'll see the same thing. So here we go. Here's the motion. Are you ready? They're very memorable. Do I need to test you? Yeah. I do? All right, here we go. All right, number one, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord. And he, well, hold on, go back. Um, say the whole thing, because it's, it's the, he starts with humble humility, and he ends with humility. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. Submit to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. You can remember this section of scripture, hopefully, by those particular things that we've talked about. Humbling yourself is the picture of making oneself low. Uh, when we humble ourselves, uh, we are at our lowest point. And the only place we can look is where? Up. The second thing in submitting to God. Uh, submission there is, is the picture of putting oneself, lining up under the authority of somebody that is over you. If you were in the military, we talked about that. You have a, an officer that you are, are under, and, and you belong to the military, and the military determines what you're going to do, when you're going to bed, when you're getting up. It's, the, it's Uncle Sam, if you want to put it that way. But in the Christian life, when we submit to God, we put him on the throne. It's his purposes. If any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. All things have, old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. It's his purposes. We belong to him. Alright, so submit to God. We talked about the resist. It's, it's, a, it's an action. It's not a passive action. It is us uh, formally standing and taking a stand against uh, Satan in the world. And again, we talked about Satan not being omnipresent. A lot of times our battle is with our flesh wanting to be in the world. Matter of fact, most of the time that's what our battle is with. Right? But it's a stand of resistance. Remember in, in Ephesians when, when Paul talks about the, the shoes, the shoes that have nails in the bottom of them that are there in that battle. When the onslaught comes on, you're able to dig in and to stand against. That's the picture. So resist uh, the devil. Last week we talked and it says that he will flee from you. Um, number four is the drawing near, and he will draw near to you. And we talked last week what it means to draw near to God. And we went through that picture because James was a... Alright, James was a pastor, but he was a Jew. Alright, and the church was Jewish. Alright, they were the ones that were there in Acts chapter 1 verse 8 when it says, first in... Jerusalem, and then they went out from there, okay? Because James is writing to those who started in Jerusalem, and they were scattered because of what? Persecution, all right? So James is Jewish, 
And the picture he would have had in mind for these Jewish New Testament believers, just as we looked at it last week, just as the Old Testament Jews, priests, would have went into the, ta into the tabernacle, through the altar, the, the sacrifice for the atonement of sins, Jesus is that sacrifice, the fulfillment of that. And they went to that next place, which was what? It was the bronze labor where they where this big thing was built and it had water in it and it had the mirrors in it. And the priests, as they went about serving the Lord, they got a little dusty, a little dirty, and they were to go to this place before they went into the holy place where they served the, the Lord. Before they went in there, they were to cleanse themselves. Cleanse themselves. And in looking into that water in its still form with the mirrors underneath it, they could see anything that needed taking care of. And that was the picture that we looked at. And the picture in the New Testament that we look into is what? The Word of God. The mirror that James talks about where we look into it and we're not supposed to walk away as if we didn't see anything. We're to address what we see. And we saw that it was not just the looking into the water that the priest would have done and we would do into the word and seeing their reflection, but it was the putting the hands into the water and slushing the water around. Is that a word? Slushing? Moving the water around for what purpose? To wash the dirt off of, our, off of their hands. We, as we read the word of God, we stir up the word of God and we see where there's things that it needs to address in our lives. And just as the stirring of the water took away the dirt that was picked up, the stirring of the Word of God in our lives shows us the dirt that's in our lives and the things that we need to take up to be clean for God's service. Now let me just stop there because you're going to say, oh, well, that just applies to Sunday school teachers. That just applies to pastors. That just applies to those that are involved in the formal service of the Lord. Well, that's not biblical. The Bible says that you are a royal priesthood. If you know Jesus as your Savior, you, upon salvation, have been given the, the charge and the command to go and to serve the Lord everywhere that you are. That means in your home. That means at the grocery store. That means uh, when you walk about whatever you do for hobbies. It's not just in here. So when we look at the priests in the Old Testament, they had a formal position. But in the New Testament, it's us. And we serve everywhere we go. So we need to address because God, uh, the dirt in our lives, because God wants to use us. That sanctification, that, that consecration would be another big word that would cover that. And we got to number five, and I was going to go past these. We sort of covered them a little bit last week, but I think I'm going to, in, in, in preparing, uh, God said just sort of stay here for a couple minutes. So it'll be more than a couple minutes, but we're going to stay here, all right? Just so you know. Alright, he says, therefore submit to God, resist the devil, he will flee from you. Draw near to God, he will draw near to you. Uh, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. What is James talking about when he says, cleanse your hands, you sinners? Now, understand this, he is talking to born-again Christians, correct? Everybody agree with that? 
He says brother throughout the book of James. So he's talking to believers. And when he says sinners, can a believer be a sinner? Yeah. Not in the sense of separation from God, but in the sense of we can do, we can sin. Okay? So he says, cleanse your hands, your sinners. And what is he talking about? If you were to go back and you can turn there if you want. But in Exodus chapter 30, verses 17 through 21, at the beginning of the tabernacle, uh, when God put the tabernacle in service, this is the charge that he gave uh, Moses. He says, and the Lord spoke to Moses. And again, talking about that bronze laver, that, that pool of water, that basin of water that the priest would look into and, and would cleanse themselves ceremonially for the service in the tabernacle, in the holy place. He says, then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, you shall make it also, you shall also make a laver of bronze with its base also of bronze for washing. You shall put it between the tabernacle of meeting and the altar and you shall put water in it. Well, that makes sense. For Aaron and his sons shall wash their hands. Now Aaron, he was, he was through him were those that were in the service of the tabernacle. Aaron and his sons shall wash their hands and their feet in water from it. When they go into the tabernacle of meeting or to burn an offering made by fire for the Lord, to the Lord, they shall wash with water, lest, listen to this, lest they die, so they shall wash their hands and their feet, lest they die. And it shall be a stature forever to them to him and his descendants throughout their generation. Now, I would not have wanted to be a priest in that day with those kind of thoughts, lest they die. You all know the Old Testament uh, account of, of, of Levi's sons, uh, Nahab and Abihu. I got the names right, right? All right. What happened to them? They offered an unholy offering, and what happened? Boom, they were dead. Uh, though as they moved the Ark of the Covenant, as David was bringing it back from captivity, the priests were carrying it, not like God told them, right? And they're carrying that, that the Ark of the Covenant on a cart, and innocently, because the cart sort of rocked, one of them puts his hands up to stop it. Now you would think, whoa, boy, oh boy, he's just trying to do something good. Dead. Dead. God says there's one way. And, and, and think about that. The, the, the high priest, when he would go into the Holy of Holies, behind the curtain, if you go back and look at the way that they were dressed, the, the, the high priest, he had on the bottom of his robe bells. And he, they would tie a rope to his foot. Why? Because there's always the possibility that he might slip and do something that's not according to God's plan. And when those bells stopped ringing, it was like, uh-oh. He's done. Better pull him out. Now, we, I don't know that there's any account of scripture that that happened, but think about that. There was no room for your way. There was no room for impurity. In the Old Testament, God struck them dead. Be grateful for God's grace. Amen. Amen. There were serious consequences for not following God's instruction when you were in his service. Being ceremonial clean was a requirement of God because of his holiness. To not be clean seriously came with the consequence of death. In the Old Testament, this cleansing was a picture of repentance and separation from the world. 
The thought carries over into the New Testament where we are. And it means moral and ethical purity. The word hands there that James uses, cleanse your hands, you sinners, is a symbol of our ethical actions. Uh, there's a verse in one of the Corinthians, I can't remember the, 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 whether it's first or second or anyway, the address, but it says to not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness before God, but present your members as instruments of righteousness before God. And that's the, that's the picture here. And you say, well, what is James saying here? Because, listen, in order to understand the full brunt of what he's saying, again, you need to go back to verse 4 in chapter 4. And he addresses them as what? And what they are doing, he calls them what? Read those first two words in, in four verse one, or chapter 4, verse 4. What's it say? Say them out loud. Adulterers and adulteresses. So when James is addressing this, there's a seriousness about what he's talking about. Adulterers and adulteresses. If you're called an adulterer, if I walked up and called anybody in this room adulterer, everybody would look and go, stone him. And that was the, 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 the consequence in that day. Adulterers and adulteresses. And again, going back to what James is talking about, when we, when we put the world before God, we are literally committing spiritual adultery. Because we are, we are betrothed to the groom, who is Jesus. We are the bride of Christ. And we are to be preparing for his return. We are to be putting on our robes of white, which is our righteousness. That we not earned righteousness as in this righteousness, but to prepare ourselves for his coming in our sanctification. And when we slip and, we, and our allegiance changes, who now has our heart? God or the world? It's the world. It's the world. And James says that's a serious offense. And we went through that. I don't want to spend a whole lot of time there. But I want you to understand again the seriousness of what he's talking about here. These believers were playing with the world. They were living a double life. They were riding the fence between God and and the world. This was something they would have remembered about their forefathers. And you all know the history in the Old Testament of the nation of Israel. They were God's people at the beginning. And they wouldn't do what God said. And they allowed the foreign nations to come in. And with the foreign nations came the world, which was the foreign gods. And before too long, the nation of Israel... They weren't allegiance to God anymore. They were what? They were worshiping the foreign gods. They were committing that adultery in the same picture. And these Jews would have known that because that's what with the, the Passover and all of those things pointed back to God, to the Old Testament. And they knew the consequences of committing the sin of worldliness. Think about this. Moses. He served the Lord well, right? He did a lot of his whole good part of his life. One thing. God told him to touch the rock. And him in a fit of anger did what? He struck the rock. And he forfeited not his salvation, but he forfeited going into the promised land. That whole generation 
of Israelites. Can you imagine? You've left Egypt, and, and you're on your way, and all of the, the stuff that we read about as they went through the wilderness, you know, their shoes didn't wear out, the bread and the manna and the fire and the cloud, and, and all of the things that God did throughout the Old Testament, and yet they still messed up, and they still sought the world, and all of those things, right? And what happened at the end of all of that? Joshua and Caleb and the 12 spies, or the, the 10 and them, went into the promised land, right? They came back with a bad report, and what happened? That whole entire generation did not see the promise of God in the promised land. The new generation did. Why? Because of their lack of faith. Consequences of worldliness. So they didn't get to experience that. And once they crossed the line... They had to deal with their actions first, and then they had to deal with their hearts. And in the New Testament specifically, that's what we're talking about. If you go back to James chapter 1, in verses 13 through 15, uh, when it talks about where, where is the source of worldliness, remember, sin is not uh, the problem. Right? Sin is a symptom. If I go to the doctor and I have a sore on my lip, the sore is not the problem, is it? It's wherever the source of that sore is. Okay? And I don't have any sores, so don't worry about that. <laughs> but the point is, is this. In James chapter 1, verse 13 to 15, he says, Let no man say, or no one say, when he is tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed, or lusts is the word, the old word. Then when lust or desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Where do our desires start? They start inside. So they needed to address what they were doing on the outside, but just addressing the outside didn't take care of the problem, did it? He says, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and then he says what? Purify your hearts, you double-minded Six in your notes there is, is purify your hearts, you double-minded. A sin is always a heart issue. Worldliness is always a heart issue. Did you hear me? Say it again. Worldliness is always a heart issue. When we choose to live on that side of the fence, even though we belong on this side of the fence, it's because this isn't right. And the actions that we do are because we've got a problem in here. When we, when we choose to go against God's words, it's because at that moment, and again, we sang that song, nothing shall ever separate us from the love of God. And I'm glad I didn't ask him to put it in this week, but I'm glad he put it in there. Because not even your actions, once you're truly saved, can separate you from the love of God. Just so you understand that. When we choose to go against God's words, it's because at that very moment, our heart's desire is not to love God with all of it. It is because we have an evil desire inside that needs dealt with. And I don't know if you remember when we talked about this. When it comes to our flesh, the Bible says we're to not be conformed to the world, right? So what's that mean? We don't allow the world to push us into its mold. That's the resist, in a sense. 
In other words, we don't want the, the world to take us and, and smash us into its mold so that we look like it. But when it comes to our heart and the issues of our heart and our flesh, especially our flesh, what do we need to do? It's not to resist it. It's to do what? Crucify. I am crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live, and he goes on. We're to crucify it. If you go back to, to James chapter 1, verse 8, he says that, that a double-minded man is unstable in all of his ways. And look at that word double-minded. We learn that a double-minded, the double-minded or a wavering man suffers from having, a, having divided interests. His, his double-mindedness finds its root, and if you go back to chapter 1, it's a root in doubt. Think about what Eve was going through when she tempted her. Well, she doubting. She was doubting whether or not God really said it. She was doubting whether or not God really was holding something back and not giving them the best. Read the passage. And she became double-minded. It's the same picture. This, this double-mindedness has grown into a wavering instability. So much so... That this person now has figuratively two souls. Figuratively. Can't have two souls. But two figurative souls. One desiring to serve God. And the other being occupied with the things of the world. And that's a very confusing place to be. I would bet that probably most of us at one time or another have been at that point. And we struggle with with. Just start the American dream. God wants me to have a house. God wants me to live in this big gated community. God wants me to have a Cadillac. God wants me to do this. God wants me to retire and never do anything again. To sit in the porch and rock. Find any of that in scripture. That's the American culture. Not that there's anything wrong with that. There isn't. But when that is your focus, and that is your God, then it is a problem. They're occupied with the things of the world. The, the word is unique. It only appears here in the Bible. Spurgeon says this. <clears throat> and remember, James is writing to individuals, but he's also writing to churches. All right, so understand this. And thinking about what I'm going to read here that Spurgeon says. When he addresses the individual, the individual's actions also affect what? The church. He says this, to neglect discipleship and spiritual disciplines for deliverance and sensual distraction is to give birth to an unholy church. If we had a church of people that were all double-minded, we would not be a holy church, right? Everybody agree? Okay. Such a church is of no use to the world and of no esteem among men. It is an abomination, hell's laughter, heaven's abhorrence. And the larger the church, the more influential. The, the worse misuse, mis, the worse nuisance it becomes when it becomes unholy. The worst evils which have ever come upon the world have been brought upon her by an unholy church. Remember what our purpose is as a body of believers here and, and corporately all over the world. Israel was chosen by God to reflect his glory to the nations. 
the, nation, the, the, the city of Jerusalem was set on a hill. Why? So all the nations of the world could see and see that beautiful city and say, man, those people serve an awesome God. That's what we are in the New Testament. On this corner, this church, whether you know it or not, even though we're at sea level, we literally are up on a hill and everybody's looking. Everybody's looking. And they're watching. And you, as you go out of these doors, whether you know it or not, even if it's just you and you're not involved in anything, but coming here and somebody knows that you come here and you go out and you're not living your life in a way that represents Jesus in the right way, you bring reproach to the name of God in this place. That's why it's so important. Because God's glory is what's at stake. Everybody agree with that? That's the purpose, ultimately, of everything. And if you ask the average person on the street to come and, and, and what, or what they think of church, most people would say something along this line. They're all hypocrites. And there may be truth to that. That doesn't mean you need to stay that way. All right? If we resist the Lord, the opposite happens. If, if, we, if, we, if we don't humble ourselves, if we don't submit ourselves, if we don't resist Satan, if we don't draw near to God, uh, and we resist that, that in, uh, in, in arrogance, God's grace, who are we ultimately submitting to? Satan. You ever think of that? C.S. In C.S. Lewis's The Screwtape Letters, some of you ever, anybody ever read that book? Oh man, you need to pick that book up and read it. Alright? C.S. Lewis was a theologian of types. Actually, he was a theologian, not of types, he was a theologian. But in what he wrote was a lot of pictures. But he says this, Uncle Screwtape, who's the, the, one, of the, the main, one of the main guys, is displeased with Wormwood because his patient has become a Christian. However, says Screwtape, there is no need to despair. Hundreds of these adult converts have been reclaimed after a brief sojourn in the enemy, capital E, camp, and are now with us, meaning they made a profession, Stayed a little while, and now they're back. Which means what? They weren't saved. In fact, this isn't theology. This is just one man's writing, okay? Right? All the habits of the patient, both mental and bodily, are still in our favor. Screwtape knew full well that converts who failed to embrace spiritual discipline and discipleship would likewise fail to become Christ-like. Put another way, unless and until a convert becomes a slave to righteousness, there is no need for the forces of darkness to be alarmed. In other words, if you choose to live your life like there's been no changes, you're not a threat to Satan whatsoever. You're not a threat to his kingdom, and you're not an asset to God's kingdom either. Romans 12, 2, which we've repeated over and over and over again here, it says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed, how? By the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that perfect and acceptable, or that good and, and acceptable and perfect will of God. Don't allow the world to push you into its mold. Transformed by what? Renewing this. 
Because see, when this is confused, our desires are confused. We are to reprogram ourselves to think like God thinks. In Ephesians 4, 17 through 24, it says this, This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk. Remember, Paul is writing to Christians in a church. Okay? Uh, you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart, who being past healing have given themselves over to lewdness to work all uncleanliness and greediness. In other words, a non-Christian doesn't know any better. He's not connected to God. He's dead spiritually. The only thing he can live for is himself and Satan. And they, the, the depravity that we see in our world is, is the evidence of that. He goes on. He says, but you have not so learned Christ, Christian, if indeed you have heard him, and have been taught by him, as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off, it's the same thought that Paul gave in Romans, that you put off concerning your former conduct, the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lust, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. Colossians 3, 16 and 17 says this, I'll let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatever you do in word and deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father through him. In other words, there, there's, a, there's a desire to know God in a sense to the point that your mind changes to match the desires of your heart, which should be. To love God with all your heart. Just a, a thought. True, sin, true repentance brings true sorrow over sin. Everybody agree with that? We're going to move on into verse 9 here. And it says this. It says lament. And the reason I said that was this. For this purpose. It says lament and mourn and weep! Exclamation point. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. So you've got the cure, and this is the reaction to the cure. In your notes there, you probably can put a better word there, but that's what I came up with. The reaction. What is it to look like when we humble ourselves, when we submit to God, when we resist the devil, when we, when we, when we draw near to him, and we cleanse our hands, and we purify our hearts? What does that look like? Following James's admonition to cleanse their hands and purify their heart, he naturally follows with the exhortation to mourning over sin. Because cleansing and purification do not take place without grief and mourning for guilt. You've got to think about James at this point. And if you read into the way this is written, he probably was a little bit emotional. Because of the wording, we can sort of get a sense of that. If you think about what we know about James and his conversion, it may help you understand this possible emotion. Remember who he was. 
He was the brother of Jesus. He rejected Jesus, who was his brother, up until the cross, where he had uh, had realized his true state. And can you imagine having lived with God Himself for thirty-three and a half years? And I'm sure. I mean, we all grew up with brothers and sisters, most of us. And probably, um, I'm not saying this is the way it was, but you ever have that, that, that brother that did everything right or that sister did everything right? And, you know, he never did anything wrong. I'm sure Jesus took something that was you. I don't believe that for a second. <laughs> the, the point is, is this. I am sure uh, that probably Jesus grew up in a normal home, that there probably was some ridicule back. <laughs> and you can see it in some of the interaction at different times in the New Testament, the few times that we, we see that. But can you imagine James's emotion here? These people are going right back to exactly in James's life the way he was up until the cross. If you go back to Matthew chapter 5, verses 3 through 6. In the, in, the, in the Beatitudes, Jesus sort of gives these soft, same thoughts. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, those that are broken. For theirs is the kingdom of, God, of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, mourn like what? Mourn over sin. For they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. And he has three of these. Let's just walk through these really quickly. A lament, and we'll talk about it. Let me give you these first three. Lament means to be afflicted. A one who has more weight than he can carry. Mourn in this verse means sincere grief. Knowing what sin does to a holy God. Three, weep. That's an outward reaction of the previous realizations. In other words, the being afflicted, the grief. In other words, the outward is. When we desire the world's ways, we have a reaction of temporary happiness. Most of us would understand that. There's that moment of satisfaction. You get to that pinnacle and it's like, all right, but it doesn't last. But the opposite is true when we understand the weight of our sin and the cost for it to be eradicated. The outward action is not happiness, but sorrow. Think of yourself um, having been caught doing the worst thing in your mind that you've done in your lifetime and you would never want anybody else to know that you're caught. With the grief, now again, you're caught, not you didn't repent, but just think about the weight that that would carry and the sorrow that that would carry. The words here, lament, mourn, and weep, refer to the wretchedness of mind brought about by a realization of sin. 
When you see somebody who's lost and they finally get the grasp of the, what their sin has done in their life and what their sin has done in reference to knowing God, and they're brought to that lowest point, that outward flow is, as they just, there's nothing I can do. They just fall down and weep. Understanding the weight of the guilt of sin, knowing in our heart how sinfulness affects God, brings that outward reaction of weeping. Do you ever think about it? And when we, when we say how sin affects God, I am sure in your mind, as it would be in my mind, we go to the big sins. Murder, rape, all of those. Over here. Lying. Slander. Thoughts. We could go on. Gossip. They're all in God's eyes the same. And they all affect him the same way. I'm going to look up, uh, if you have any, you can turn back real quick to Genesis chapter 37. Just a picture of what this means, what this word, these three words are, are pictured as. And, uh, in Genesis chapter 37, verse 34, we have the story of, of, of uh, the 12 brothers. And one, Joseph, who was the upstart, he was a little bit arrogant. The brothers didn't like him. He was dad's favorite, right? What they do, they dug a hole, they stuck him in it, they took his coat, right? Put blood on it, took it back to Jacob and said, here, 